0: You are listening to the Central Sanford Podcast. To learn more about Central Sanford, including our gathering times, visit us online at centralsanford.net. Today's talk comes from Pastor Alan Brumbach. God's Word and turn to James chapter 5, James chapter 5. And in a moment, we're going to begin in verse number 1. I won't have you stand up again since I don't want you to go up and down, up and down. But we're going to be in James chapter 1. Those of you watching online, we're so honored to have you with us this morning. And if you're a first-time guest, wow, thank you so much for coming today. We salute all of our veterans, amen? Amen. We are thankful for you. Praise God. We thank you so much. I don't know if you've had a chance to go to downtown Sanford to go to the replica of the the Vietnam War Memorial. But if you go, I took my children there yesterday, and, and it is just so sobering. Uh, so many lives, over 58,000 men and women gave their lives in the service of our country in the, in the Vietnam uh, War, and we just thankful. But we know that Veterans Day is not, is not for the dead, but it is for the living, those who have served and sacrificed so much. Well, we thank you so much. James chapter 5, verse 1, the Bible says, Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and you, and will eat your flesh like fly, fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold the wages of the laborers who have mowed your fields which you kept back by fraud are crying out against you and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned. You have murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Now, if you read that, that sounds kind of scary, right? (laughs) Well, here James is writing to not only people in his day, but he's writing to us in our day. We live in a day of great consumerism. We live in a day of great wealth. You say, Pastor, I'm not very wealthy. Well, if you make, if your family makes around $25,000 a year, you are in the top 2% in the entire world. If your family makes more than $50,000 a year, you are in the top 1% in the world. We live in a Western American culture that is wealthy. We're wealthy. You may not feel like you're wealthy, but compared to the rest of the world, we're wealthy. The song that Pastor Josh sang for us this morning, I was, the first time I heard that song was in a house church in northern Iraq. And I was sitting on a dirt floor and they were playing that song. All that I have is yours. But we live in a day of great consumerism. And the great day of advertisement, in which it is said, I don't know if you are understanding just how much advertisement affects your life, that the average person, according to studies that have been done, are exposed to around 362 advertisements a day. That's on television, radio, social media, the internet, Big Brother, whoever, they're all giving you advertisements. And the objective of the advertisers is to convince you to buy something that they're selling. And they want you to believe that you desperately need it. And if you don't buy what they're selling, you will be miserable. Seth Godin, in his book, All Marketers Are Liars, said this. He said, listen, here's the deal. They're telling you a story that if you just believe the story we're telling you, you're going to want our product. So what companies do is they want you to believe that if you buy their product, you will be happy, satisfied, hip, cool, wanted, fulfilled, And satisfied. And yet the reality is, is that most of what they're selling is a lie. So James here is writing to believers. And the theme of the entire book as we've gone through it these past few weeks is that it's just not enough to say that you're a Christian. You need to show that you're a Christian. And one of the great arenas of faith is how we as believers spend and steward our money. If you remember, James is the half-brother of Jesus, and all throughout the book, we hear the echoes of Jesus in the book of James, and what we know about Jesus is that Jesus spoke more about money than he did about heaven or hell combined, and so in the verses that we just heard, we hear the voice of Jesus and his indignation and his indictment on those who have believed the lies of society when it comes to money. He is he is indicting those who put their trust in money rather than putting their trust in God. Now I know when you hear this morning, maybe your first time guest said, "Well, here it is." Every time I ever come to church, all they do is talk about money. Well, maybe, maybe just you need to come to church more often, or, or maybe God has a word for all of us this morning. Amen. Two things I want to share with you. The first thing I want to share with you is this, and that is the condemnation of the ungodly rich. He says in verse number one, he says, come now, you, and I put it in here, rich people. Now, who is he speaking to? There are four categories of people uh, that that I think that we can kind of define based on rich and poor. There are the ungodly rich, and there, there are the ungodly poor. There are the godly rich, and there are the ungodly, or there are the godly poor. And so who James is addressing here is the ungodly rich, and he's not so much talking about those who are in the church, and the reason why is because normally when he's addressing those specifically in the church, he'll use the phrase, my brothers or our brothers, or he'll speak of it in terms of endearment. But here he just says, come now, come on now, you rich people. And so the people that were actually reading this book were were poor. They were the godly poor, and they had been exploited by the ungodly rich. They were being exploited by the ungodly wealthy people of their day. So here he's speaking to them, but yet it's interesting, and we're going to talk about this in a moment, is that the people that are actually reading this book are Christians. But yet in this section of the book, he's addressing non-Christians. And, and why would he do that? And I think that the, the reason he does that is a great benefit for all of us this morning. So he begins and he says, Come now, you rich people, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Now he is using Old Testament prophetic language. Doug Moo in his commentary said this he says that James's style is that of the prophets pronouncing doom on pagan nations. Israel, which received the prophecies of the major prophets, heard from the prophets like Ezekiel and Isaiah and even Daniel, the, the condemnation of the pagan nations around them, and, and, and it was in God's kindness that he sends warning before judgment. So in this language here, he says, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Peter Davids, one another commentator, said this, he says, James looks with divine foresight And sees the dark hurricane of cloud of the day of the Lord about to strike them down. Now, what is he saying, weeping and wailing? Weeping and wailing is not about this life now, but it's about the life to come. So, what James is doing and what he's saying here is that based on how you're living, the wrath of God is coming upon you. Now, James here is not saying because you are wealthy, you're condemned. But it's how you've used your wealth or misused your wealth in this life that you are being condemned. So in this, this statement in this in this passage, he gives us four indictments against the ungodly rich. So here these four. The first indictment that he gives is hoarding. He says in verse number two, he says your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Verse three the gold and your your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be the evidence against you and you will and will eat your flesh with fire because you have laid up treasure in the last days so what he was saying is that what the the indictment that God has given upon these ungodly riches is that they were selfishly hoarding their money rather than humbly using their money in, in this day, in the ancient agrarian culture, there were, there were three sources, three measures of wealth. There was first grain or livestock. There was then the second measure of wealth was clothing, what you wore. And then the third measure of wealth was either gold, silver, or precious stones or jewels. And so James's indictment here is this, is that you guys have been stockpiling, and we live in a day in which uh, accumulation is seen as a virtue and amassing wealth is seen as, as something that shows success. As a matter of fact, we measure success by how much we have. The statement is this, is that the more you have, the more successful you are. And so a lot of people want to be like the rich people. We have, uh, I don't know if you see the Forbes magazine, but annually it comes out and it, it lists the top. Uh, richest people in the world or the richest people in America, and it's always Jeff Bezos and Bill Gates and Warren Buffett and Mark Zuckerberg who are constantly battling over who has the most money. So the issue here is hoarding, and, he, and he's saying it in a sense that's not, it's in a negative. There's nothing wrong with saving in a positive way, but here he's talking about just stop piling it up and hoarding it up and get all you can and can all you get and sit on the can and then poison the rest. And so what he's getting at is the very heart of the issue in verse number three, and that is you have laid up treasure in the last days. That is the issue that James has is that they were trusting in their stuff to save them. They were stockpiling these things and, and accumulating all this stuff, thinking that, that it would save them in the end, that it would protect their future, that it would provide for them. And so that what they were doing is that they were putting their hope in their money, and they thought that if they just had enough stuff, it would settle their anxieties. Jesus kind of spoke about this. Maybe you hear the words of Jesus in this in Mark Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 through 21, where Jesus says, do not lay up for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourself treasure in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will also be. Listen to this one thing. If your treasure is on earth, it will never be safe. You don't know why? Because someone can steal it or your kids can break it. Or time will destroy it. How many times have you bought something really expensive and the entire time you worry about something messing up? Like have you ever bought a new car or a new, a new vehicle and, and you're constantly worried about somebody hitting it or your kids riding their bike up against it to put little racing stripes on the side of it. You buy something new and constantly you're worried about it messing up. Or have you ever gotten a new gadget? You know, you get the new latest, greatest iPhone that they came out with. And, and you're constantly worried about dropping it or breaking it. Or you, you get new clothes and, and you're constantly kind of concerned. Is this starting to fade? Is this starting to wear out? Or, or you're worried about get, it getting stained? I don't know about you, but any, I don't wear white. And the reason why I don't wear white is because inevitably, if ever I eat, uh, eat white, <laughs> if ever I wear white, I'll eat something, and it'll go all over it. What James is saying here is this, is that all this stuff that we're accumulating, all this stuff that we're hoarding, it's not gonna last. It's foolish to accumulate all this stuff because it will not last. As a matter of fact, what it will do is it will testify against you. In verse three, he says that the corrosion, the moth-eaten corrosion will be evidence against you. Those who put trust in their wealth that they've accumulated will find that it will testify against them and will actually burn them in the end. George Stalock, who is another commentator on this passage, said this. He said, the rich will lose everything they've devoted themselves to and everything they've relied upon. Theirs will be the despair of people who discover their dreams and their treasures destroyed forever. If your hope is in the stuff you accumulate, realize One, you can't take it with you when you die, and it is decaying. The food in your refrigerator, the food in your pantry, all the junk in your house is not going to last. James here is saying, woe to you rich people who have mountains of food in your pantry, who have all kinds of stuff in your house, and you're putting your hope in those things. It will not last. But the second thing he makes an indictment about is not just hoarding but oppression. In verse number four, he says this. He says, behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. In in this day, in in the ancient agrarian day, the wealthy landowners would actually hold back wages from their their employees. And they would do this because really the employees didn't really have any stay. They didn't have any way to kind of do anything. And so they would exploit them. Or they would maybe not necessarily give them all the money. They would give them some of the money. And in this day, people lived literally hand to mouth. If they didn't get paid that day, they didn't eat that day. And the landowners would cut corners. They would cheat their workers out of money. And they would exploit them because they didn't care for them. And here the landowners thought, you know what? I'm going to oppress this poor person. They're poor. They can't do anything. But here's the thing. God knows. God knows. So he says here that the wages... The wages of the laborers are crying out. The word here, crying out, is to scream. They're screaming. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. And it's interesting here that James uses this word, Lord of hosts, because this speaks of God as the mighty warrior who commands his mighty angels to defend and bring justice where there is injustice. So James is saying, woe to you who are hoarding stuff, accumulating wealth. Woe to you who are oppressing poor people, who are using what you think as an advantage to push them down. And then the fifth and the third thing here is overindulgence. He says in verse 5, he says, you have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. That is, you've lived a soft, pampered life. Where you see luxuries as necessities. That if you want it, then you buy it. And if you see that someone else has it, then you're envious of it. And you live a self-centered, extravagant lifestyle. And you don't care about anybody else. This is an indictment on them. Woe to you who live this self-indulgent, over-indulgent lifestyle. Now, what he's not saying is that it is a sin to enjoy the good gifts of God. It's not a sin to enjoy the good gifts of God. Some of you in this room, God has blessed you with very many things. And the Bible says that every good gift and every perfect gift comes from the Father above with whom there is no various variation or shadow due to change. That if you have anything that's good, it's a gift of God. I'm not telling you that it's wrong to enjoy the good gifts of, life, of God. But what he is saying is this. It is sinful to see yourself as the center of everything and to live a lavish lifestyle without regard of serving other people. This is what we have to have in our mindsets, is that we should never live, pardon me, we should never be living as well as we could. See, most people in our society want to live to their means or above their means. We want to live as well as we can, but the Christian ethic is we should never be living as well as we could because it's more blessed to give than to receive. We have been blessed by God not to just be a blessing to ourselves. We have been a blessed, we've been blessed by God to be a blessing to others. So notice here what James says. We haven't even this is just a pre-sermon. We haven't even got to the sermon yet. So that's what I'm trying to go through here quickly. He says, You have fattened your hearts. In the day of slaughter, he says, You are living, you're hoarding things, you're oppressing people, and you are living a lavish lifestyle, but all the while you are fattening your heart for the day of slaughter. He says, You are like a cow at a feedlot, and you are getting fattened by the junk of this world. But one day there's a slaughter, there's a day of reckoning. You're gonna get yours. Then he says in verse 6, the fifth indictment or the fourth indictment is this murder. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Now, of the ungodly rich who he's speaking to, he's speaking of just where their desire for money will lead them to murder. You say, Well, that seems kind of crazy. How many crimes are committed over money? How many people have died because of money? You know, almost every crime is built upon money and the love of it and wanting more of it. James has already told us, you desire and do not have and do not get, so you murder. Some of you this morning, you may not kill somebody for money, but you desire money so much that you would kill for it. You know, it's amazing to see what happens when people pass away, how people act when it comes to inheritance. If you want to see how close a family really is, see how they handle inheritance. So what we see here is this condemnation. We went through it really quickly, but here he condemns hoarding, just just accumulating stuff and putting your treasure on earth, he he talks about oppressing people, poor people, being overindulgent even to the point of murdering others. So what does that have to do with us? I want to give you a second point. This is where the sermon is. I want to show you the comfort and correction that God gives for the godly poor and the godly rich. Why does James write to the ungodly? wealthy landowners who will probably never read this letter. Think about that. It's it's just like, you know, you're just writing a letter just out to the wind. Why would God do this? Why would God, under inspiration, allow James to write a passage of Scripture to a group of people who would never read it? How do we as believers, those who are believers in this room, get a benefit from reading this condemnation? Two ways. Number one, comfort. Number two, correction. Where's the comfort? Here's the comfort to believers. All throughout these six verses, James is pointing to the second coming and the day of judgment. In verse number one, he talks about a judgment that is coming upon you. Verse three, he talks about the last days. Verse four, he talks about the day of slaughter. And even later on in verse seven, he talks about the coming of the Lord. What James is doing is he's using prophetic speech and he's giving believers who have been exploited by the rich hope for final justice, there's a payday coming. See, it is easy for us today to resent rich people. It's easy for us today, especially if you have experienced injustice, to want to see those people fall now. So for James to write this passage of Scripture to a group of poor people who have literally had their landlords exploit them. They've worked all day, all week for nothing. They've Some of them have even been murdered. They, they live, they, they're seeing all these people live such high, wealthy statuses. They, they are driving the Lexus. They're even driving better than Lexus. I mean, that's what they just drive whenever they can't ride their really good cars, like their Porsches and whatevers. See, I'm so poor, I don't even know what the good cars are. (laughs) And here, they're seeing all this, and they're living, and and they're seeing these people feast while they're sitting there eating ramen noodles. And they're hearing James say, listen, there's a day coming. They're going to get their comeuppance. God has heard your cries and God cares. See, some of you have gone through so much injustice in your life and you feel like God doesn't know. This passage of Scripture tells us that God hears the cries and He cares. See, it's when we remember who God is and when we know that we know for a fact that He knows everything. He sees everything, He hears everything, and that we can be sure of this, that no one will escape His judgment. See, this is the hope that gave those in slavery in our country, this Christian hope that judgment is coming, gave them hope as you read these great spiritual songs, these, as they, 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 they sang of the, the songs of the African slaves, as you read their line upon line, and I read quite a bit this week, is as you you hear within them this this hope and anticipation that when they sing a song like nobody knows the troubles I've seen, nobody knows but Jesus, or when they sing songs like He never said a mumbling word. Not one word. He never said a mumbling word. And as a sang of those songs of "Swing Low, Sweet Chariot," as you listen to the words and the lyrics of the spiritual hymns of the Christian slaves who were enslaved in this country, there is this hope that judgment is coming. So this morning, maybe you're oppressed by your employer, or you're oppressed by someone in life or you see the income inequality in your life and you feel like you've been disenfranchised or maybe you've seen how this country tends to lean towards the rich and exploit the poor. Hear the words of James, justice is coming. Justice is coming. Leave it to God. Sometimes, believe it or not, things don't always happen the way we want them to. Sometimes, believe it or not, people are mean. Sometimes, believe it or not, we experience injustice. The Bible says, vengeance is the Lord's. Leave it to Him. Because you know what I found about God and vengeance? He can do a whole lot better job than I can. But not only do we have comfort in this text, but correction Here's the meat of the message. What James is telling us in these six verses is he's saying that we as believers should not envy the rich. He's not condemning being rich. There are many rich, godly people in the Bible. Let me give you some names Abraham, he was rich. Joseph was rich. Job was rich. David was rich. Solomon was rich. Josiah, I've been reading about him lately in the Word, he was rich. Lazarus was rich. Philemon was rich, Joseph of Arimathea was rich, Lydia the seller of purple. she was rich. There's nothing wrong with being rich. What's wrong is when we desire to be rich. Notice that the problem is not having money. The problem is loving money. That's where the problem is. First Timothy chapter six. Paul writes, "To those who desire to be rich, they fall into temptation into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. Let's stop there for a second. He says, if you desire to be rich, you don't understand that it's gonna plunge you into all kinds of other things. Because the desire to be rich will lead and trigger different things that you'll have to do in order to be rich. Verse 10, for the love of money, not not money, but the love of money, is the root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that many have wandered away from the faith and have pierced themselves with many pangs. Money can take you from God, because what happens is that money can be your God. See, over and over, if you read the Bible, wealth is not always an advantage; it's actually a spiritual handicap. Jesus will say in Mark chapter 10, verse 25, that it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. Jesus will say in Luke chapter 12, verse 15, he'll say, Take care and be on guard against all covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And what happens is this is that the more we possess, the more opportunity we have to be possessed by what we possess. See, often the things that we see as assets become liabilities because we constantly have to give them care and concern to maintain what we have. So you buy a house, and maybe some of you, you're, you're, saving, up, you're saving up for the dream house, okay? Just make sure you buy it in the right market, right? You're saving this big, nice house. Here's what I've learned as a homeowner. Stuff breaks. Stuff breaks and I'm not very handy. And because I'm not handy and stuff breaks, who are you going to call? You can't call Ghostbusters. So when there's something strange in the bathroom, <laughs> who are you going to call? The plumbers, right? When something breaks, what are you going to do? And you got to constantly take care of your house. How many of you, don't say it out loud because I don't want your wives or husbands to get, ups, or to get upset, but how many of you have had fights over fixing stuff in the house? Lord, help us. We're going to have an invitation at the end. You can repent at the altar. <laughs> Again, I want to reiterate that money in and of itself is not evil. But money is very dangerous. Because it's like fire. Money's like fire. I love you know, I, I'm looking forward to when it gets cooler, much cooler, when I go up north for on a vacation. I love going and just kind of standing by a fire. Isn't it great? We have one of those little fire pits out. I, I put it together, and we're praying it stays together. But we put it together out in the back. I've never used it, but it's there in case it ever gets cold. But fire is great. But if you leave a fire uncontrolled, it can destroy everything. See, there's nothing wrong with money. Money's neutral. But if it's not controlled, it becomes dangerous because our hearts are deceptive. And and, and our heart will take a neutral thing like money and turn it into a God thing, and we start worshiping and loving money more than we worship and love God. And you say, well, I don't do that. Let me ask you this question. This is something I had to ask myself this week. If I lost all my money, would I still be okay? If I lost all my money and had God, would that be enough? And you all say, yes, well, y'all want to lose your money this week? What happens in our lives is we start looking at how big our bank account is rather than how big our God is. And when we look to money to give our hearts what only God can give us, we have taken a good thing or maybe a neutral thing like money and made it a God thing. And we start to then put our hope in money rather than God. This could be dangerous for you as a person. This could be dangerous for you as a family. This could be even dangerous for churches. We put our trust in the uncertainty of riches. Notice, again, Paul writing to to young Timothy, he says, As for the rich in this present age, he's speaking to all of us, charge them not to be arrogant, not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches. Any of you in the stock market, any of you have a 401k tied to the stock market, any of you lived in that way, it's up and down. Don't ever watch the stock market every day. You'll go nuts. You absolutely will. I've got $3 in it right now. The other day, it went to two and a half, almost lost my religion, all right? (laughs) Do not put your hope in the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. In your mind, if you say this, if I only had more money, then I would be happy. If I only had more of this or that, then I would be said, if I only had this much money in my account, then I would never have to worry about it. The deception is if I only, because all you need is God. Solomon, who was very rich, said this in Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verse 10, he who loves money will never be satisfied with money. Listen to that. So he asked J.D. Rockefeller how much is enough. He said another dollar. Nor he who loves wealth with his income, this is vanity. Short, Soren Kierkegaard, who is a Danish philosopher, wrote this. He says, riches and abundance can hypocritically clad, come hypocritically clad in sheep's clothing, pretending to be security against anxieties, and they become then the object of anxiety. They secure a man against anxieties just about as well as the wolf that is put to tending the sheep. So what is James wanting to do with this? He wants us to examine our hearts. Folks, we need to examine our hearts when it comes to what we spend, to what we have, and how we save. There is a connection between your bank account and your heart. There just is. Even when I talk about money from the pulpit, people get upset. Why do they get upset? Because they know in their hearts... they struggle. But I want you to understand that this sermon is not for you to judge other people. It's really easy to leave here and judging all those rich people. It's really easy to judge all those people that you go to church with and you say, you know what, they're driving a Beamer. (coughs) They got all that money. They're stingy. This is not for you to judge others. This is for you to judge you. So I want to ask you some questions. Number one, how am I spending my money? How am I spending it? Is it self-indulgent just for me? Or is it wise stewardship? I'm not saying you can't buy something. I'm not saying you can't go to Chick-fil-A. I'm just saying, is it self-indulgent or is it wise stewardship? Number two, three. Is what I'm buying just to accumulate more stuff? If you looked in your closet lately, if you haven't go and look at all the clothes you have, I know places around the world where they have a couple of shirts. I know for my this is an issue for me. I can be a hoarder of clothes. It's an issue. Look into different things. Do you need that widget? Do you need that, or are you just wanting to accumulate it? Ask yourself this week, where's my hope at? And then ask yourself, am I generous with the things that God has given me? And so then the last question is this, how can I now advance the gospel and help the needs of others and live for the glory of God with this in view? So the question I want to ask you, just very we're gonna this is not for, I'm not judging you because I have to talk to my Lord and I have to come before my Lord every day with these same questions. Here's the question How much money did I give last year or this year to the things of God? You want to see where your heart is? Look at your bank account and see how much money have you given to the things of God. Do you know that the average car payment in America? is around, around close to $400 a month. And some of you say, well, man, that would be a cheap car payment. Think about that and then compare Let me ask you this question. Did you give more this month to your car payment or to God? You think about that. How much did you give to the church? I know there you, are. you said, I knew you were going to do this, preacher. I knew you were going to say it. I knew you were going to talk about money and give it to the church. Well, let me just be honest with you this morning. The church does not operate on pixie dust and rainbows. It just doesn't. I had a young guy a couple weeks ago, he said, I just found out that the reason we take up offerings is to help the church. It takes money to operate. And the good news is this, is that if we as a church are faithful, here's what I found. God always provides. He always provides. He does. But you want to know how he provides it? Through you and me. So, I want to just say this, and and I know some of you may get upset and turned off, but, but just hear what I'm going to say with a spirit of humility. If you attend Central, and if you believe in the vision and the mission of this church, and if you have been blessed by the ministries of this church, and if you want to see the glory of God expanded through this church, then give generously, sacrificially, and faithfully to this church. And if you don't, if you don't believe in the ministry, the vision, if you've not been blessed by this church, if you don't want to see the glory of God expanded through this church, then give your money somewhere else. I, I'm not, this is not a plea to get more money here. But here's what I want you to understand. When it comes to giving, it's not that 10% is the finish line, it's the baseline. You know, when Jesus died, he didn't just tithe his blood. He actually gave it all. And so in my life with with my family, because I'm never going to ask you to do something I'm not doing. That my family, we want to live in such a way and give in such a way that we see the biggest bang for our buck is involved with what God is doing locally and globally. So we tithe, we give to Central because we believe in the vision and the ministry of Central. We love supporting the staff, we love supporting the ministers, and we love supporting the mission. And we believe in the stewardship of this church. Now, let me just say this there are some places that you give and you're like, well, where's it going? What are they doing with it? They're, they've got like Taj Mahal Church. Listen, this is a no frills church, we got stained carpet. We got messed up pews. We don't have bells and whistles. You say, well, we just bought a new light. We got it on sale. (laughs) Listen, well, there's no frills here. None. None. Because we understand that this money is not our money. It's God's money. And we want to give as much as this money to the nations as possible. We give 12% of every dollar that comes in to the nations. Every bit of it. As we get towards this above and beyond offering that we're going to be talking more about in December, we're going to be giving above and beyond even what we did last year to missions. Do you realize that our church last year gave almost $200,000 to missions for the glory of God? So, that doesn't mean we can't have nice stuff or that we have to always have stained carpet. But what I'm saying is this, is that we want to be good stewards of it. We don't have any debt. God's been good. And I want to thank you for being generous. This is a generous church. Man, my time, I got too fired up. I, I need to hurry up. This is a generous church. And this message is not asking you to give more money. This message is a heart check. Because I believe that if you have received the generous grace of God, you will be generous towards other people. And so think about it when you go out to eat after church how much you leave in your server. Think about it this week when you see somebody in need. I'm not necessarily saying those guys on the street and the gals on the street. We don't know about their story. I'm I'm saying use some discernment there. But you may see somebody in need. How can you help? Think about those things. How can you bless somebody else? Now let me end with this. i got to do it really, really quick. Verse number six says this. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person, and he does not resist you. I can't help but read this and think of Jesus. I don't know if that's what James was doing in this. I don't I'm not sure that he was, but here's what I do know: that Jesus is the righteous one who was murdered and he didn't resist. Isaiah 53, verse 7 says, He was oppressed and he was and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth, like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that is before his shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. The reason that we can give and the reason that we can be free from all the tyranny of The tropes of this world when it comes to money is this, is because of this. The gospel, in and of itself, is the generosity of God flowing out to us and giving us a new identity that helps us combat against the lies of our heart, Satan, and the culture around us in regard to money, materialism, and the cares of this world. Listen to this because Jesus Christ died on the cross and rose from the dead and gives you new life because he was murdered for you, he didn't resist. You have a new identity in Him. You know what my identity is? Yes, my name is Alan. My last name is Brumback. Yes, I'm from this great state of Kentucky that has a horrible football team. (laughs) Yes, I'm married to April and I have three kids. Yes, I'm the pastor of Central Baptist Church. But you know what my greatest identity is? I'm a child of God. I have been adopted by God. And everything else in this world may fall apart, but that will not change who I am in him. I am not defined by my house, by my income bracket, by my car, by my savings account, by my clothes, or by my gadgets. And I don't have to believe the lies of this world because my eternity is set. My future is sure. I'm no longer a slave to stuff. I am a child of God. And because I'm a child of God, my mission is... Is his mission. My calling is his calling. My goals are his goals, and therefore my money is his money. He owns everything. So this week, be willing to be generous. Three ways how, real practically. How can I be generous? Number one, I need to remember that everything I have is a gift from God and is meant to be used for the glory of God. Number two, I need to grow in financial wisdom. Some of you would love to give but you're broke. Get on a budget. Stick to the budget. We we offer financial peace university here almost year round. Stick to a budget, live within your means and work hard. 3. I need to stop living like this world is all there is and that eternity doesn't matter. If you want to be generous, remember what Christ did. You have a new identity you have is from God I need to grow in wisdom this world is not all there is and then be willing to be used of God you ever played Monopoly I love Monopoly you get all that stuff all the houses the hotels love being a landlord baron I love it when my kids land on something I have and I take all their money I love it. I play pretty ruthless. I've never been beat. Because when you cheat, you're, you never get beat. <laughs> just kidding. Do you know what? It's just a game. We get done. I can win all the money on the whole board. And then when it's over, you know what we do with it? We put all the money up, all the property up all this junk up, put it in a box, put it away, and it's over. Do you realize that your life is almost like a game of Monopoly? And you can try to get all you can and advance go and avoid jail. But realize that one day you're going to stand before God and give an account for everything you did. What are you going to say?